Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Ward. I'm the pastor of high school ministry here at Chapel Street. And just really excited for the chance to be with you this morning and to dig into God's word together. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I've absolutely been loving the weather outside the last few days. I know it's kind of not so nice today with all the rain coming in, but I've been loving the weather because it finally kind of feels like it's fall. Anybody love the fall? Yeah, that's pretty much everybody. The fall is my favorite season of the year because there's just so many good things about the fall. Like there's football on Friday nights and Saturday nights and Sundays. And I guess Mondays and there's pretty much football every day of the week. So it doesn't get much better than that. But that the crisp air in the morning and the candy, maybe not all the crazy Halloween decorations that pop up in our neighborhood. Uh, but anyways, I love the fall because there's so many great things that happen. And there's also a lot of great traditions in the fall. I think my favorite fall tradition, maybe some of you are with me on this, but it's going out to the apple orchard. I've already been out there a couple times this fall, and I'm not really proud to admit to you how many apple cider donuts I've probably taken care of in the last two or three weeks or so, uh, but it's been a lot. And actually, just uh, earlier this week, we had the opportunity to bring our one-year-old daughter out to the pumpkin farm and to the apple orchard for the first time. Here's a picture that we took of my family. That's my wife, Ashlyn, and daughter, Raylan. And as you can see in the picture, she loves pumpkins, like way more than I think anybody could really love pumpkins. But again, the fall is such a great season because it's a great time to continue old traditions and also to create some new traditions as well. And in the story that we're going to be diving into here this morning in the Gospel of Mark, it's really all focused around this idea of created traditions. And Jesus has some really important things to point out, both to the religious leaders of that day in the story that we'll read, but I also believe he has some important things to point out to us here this morning as well. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working through the Gospel of Mark in our series called Following the King. And we've spent the last couple of weeks in Mark chapter 6 really in some, some very well-known stories, but also just some truly incredible stories in Mark 6. Two weeks ago, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then last week, Pastor Brian was here to preach on the story in Mark 6 of Jesus walking on water. And all of that leads us to the point where we are here this morning in Mark chapter 7. We're going to be reading a pretty significant chunk of Mark 7 here this morning. So let's dive right in. We're going to start uh, just by reading verses 1 through 5 in Mark chapter 7. If you have your little uh, journals with you that we've been working through as a church family, you'll find this on page 42. Here's what Mark writes, Mark 7 verses 1 to 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, which I'd like to learn a little bit more about what a dining couch is. But uh, Verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
We'll pause there for now. And I think the first thing that we see happening here in this text is a problem confronted. A problem confronted. Uh, Unlike uh, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Brian, I don't really have any collegiate sports stories that I can share with you. I didn't play any sports in college. Uh, But I do have quite a few intramural sports stories that I can share about my college days. I was actually so involved in intramurals at my school that when I uh, jumped up and went to grad school, I decided that I was going to become one of the referees, one of the officials for intramural sports. And I learned something really quickly in the first intramural B-League basketball game that I officiated. And then it's, I'm pretty sure basketball, which is at that point essentially pick up basketball, tends to bring the worst out in like 19 and 20 year old boys. I don't know what it was, but I wasn't ready for it. That first game got way out of hand, was crazy, heated, people were arguing, it was wild. So I decided for the second game, the next game I was going to officiate, that as the referee, I was going to try to take charge a little bit, right? I was going to be looking for opportunities to blow my whistle, to call some early fouls, kind of set the tone for the game so that things didn't get too wild. And let me tell you, it happened right away. I think it was the first play of the game, maybe the second play, I don't exactly remember. But this guy kind of made some light contact with another player, but I was looking for it. So I blew my whistle and I called the foul. And the kid who made some contact, he kind of reacted a little bit. He was kind of upset. He thought it was kind of a, a cheap foul, but I was looking for it, right? So I blew my whistle again and I teed him up, gave him a technical foul. It's pretty intense. I didn't realize at the time that one technical foul in intramural basketball actually resulted in an automatic ejection. And so within like 15 seconds of this game, I tossed this kid out of the gym back to his dorm room and he was done for that game and actually was not uh, eligible to play in the next game either. See, sometimes when you're looking for it, it can be pretty easy to find a problem to confront. Let's look back at what Mark writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. I think it's important here that we remember that at this point in the gospel narrative, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they already had a pretty certain idea of who they thought Jesus was. And they were already pretty determined to take him down. And the disciples, they really provide for the Pharisees and scribes the perfect opportunity, right? They're doing something that's completely against all of the traditions that were so regularly followed at that time. They were eating with unwashed hands. Now, I think it's no surprise that this idea of unwashed hands probably kind of triggers some of us based on everything we've gone through in the last couple of years, right? Pretty much everywhere we look, somebody's talking about the importance of washing your hands in pretty much every bathroom I think I've been in, including the one right over there. There's even a sign taped to the mirror that tells you how to wash your hands. I don't know about you, but I've learned just how long 20 seconds can really feel when you're just washing your hands, but that's what's happening here is actually very different from how we might understand this idea of unwashed hands. Because this doesn't mean that the disciples' hands were dirty. Actually, this had nothing to do with hygiene at all. The idea of, of washing your hands, the importance of not spreading germs, that wasn't something that was put into practice until several centuries later. And so what is this whole thing about washing hands about? Well, Mark gives us a little bit more detail about it in the next couple of verses. We read it a minute ago, but let's look back one more time at verses 3 and 4. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash 
And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. So here's, here's really what's going on here. The Pharisees and the Jews, they were trying to do everything that they possibly could to make sure that they did not break the Old Testament law and to try to ensure some sense of holiness before God. But they kind of twisted some very specific washing rules that God had given to the priests. And then they even added to it a whole bunch of other rules and traditions and rituals to ensure that nobody would even come close to breaking the law of God. So when we kind of understand some of that background, some of the context of really what's happening here, right? That the Pharisees, they were kind of out to get Jesus and that they took all of these traditions super, super seriously. Then the question that they begin to ask Jesus, really that they kind of begin to confront Jesus with in verse 5, I think begins to make a little bit more sense to us. Because they ask Jesus in verse 5, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. Essentially, they're asking, why are you allowing them to act this way? Why aren't you enforcing that they follow all of these traditions that everybody else is following? Before we get to Jesus' response here, I think it's really important that we mention something. The, uh, The Pharisees and the scribes, they did have really good intentions behind all of these traditions that might even seem a little bit silly to us today. But again, their intent was to remind them that they were unclean and to keep them from even getting close to breaking God's law. But like we mentioned a minute ago, they kind of began to add some things and they elevated the importance of all of these traditions. And then they even went out looking for opportunities to confront anybody who wasn't following all of these traditions and rituals. You see, the Pharisees confront Jesus with what they viewed to be a really big problem, right? Why are your disciples not following all of those traditions? But next we see that Jesus responds by identifying the real problem that's at hand. And that leads us to our next point here this morning. That is the problem identified. I think something that I've learned about myself in the last uh, almost four years of marriage now, and honestly, I'm not sure if my wife would attest to this or not, uh, but here's, here's what I think I've learned. It's that I'm not really lazy around the house. I just don't always notice all the same things that she notices, right? To be fair, I do think I am pretty helpful around the house. You can ask her later. She's sitting, <laughs> sitting over there. But there just seems like every week or so, there's something that she has to kind of help me identify, right? Something that I just haven't seen, haven't noticed, that I haven't cleaned up. For example, like when I forget to spray a shirt, when I don't even see the stain that's on it before I put it in the laundry, or the garbage bin in the bathroom that looks oftentimes more like a volcano than anything else, just kind of erupting from the inside. See, that's what I think happens here next in this story. Jesus begins to identify the problem to the Pharisees, and to the scribes. Let's read on in our scripture here this morning in Mark chapter 7. This time, let's look at Mark 7, verses 6 to 13. It says, And he, referring to Jesus, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Again, here we see that Jesus is identifying the real problem that's going on. And he begins by telling the Pharisees and the scribes that they have a heart of hypocrisy. I wonder if you noticed how Jesus answered that question. In verse 6, he's beginning to answer the question that was asked in verse 5. Essentially, why are the disciples not following all of those traditions? But did you notice how, how Jesus answers that? He doesn't try to, to defend his disciples in any way. He doesn't try to explain away their actions or give excuses for why they weren't doing the ceremonial hand washing. In fact, he doesn't even mention the disciples at all. Instead, he first right away goes after the Pharisees and he calls them out for being hypocrites. See, they're accusing the disciples of having a problem, but Jesus is telling them that they are the ones who have a heart of hypocrisy. The word hypocrite that's used here comes from the Greek word for actor. It literally means someone who claims to believe or to do one thing, but then acts in a very different way. I think oftentimes in our culture, we kind of think of a hypocrite as some kind of a, a faker or a pretender, somebody who's kind of intentionally doing that exact thing of hypocrisy. But I think to give them some credit here, the Pharisees, they really weren't fakers or pretenders. In some ways, they were kind of com- the complete opposite. Right? Because they were so determined to follow the law of God. They were so determined to be clean before God. But it's just the way that they went about it that was all wrong. Right? They became completely misguided and they began to focus completely on all the wrong things. And that is what Jesus is calling them out on here in this story. He tells them that you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Essentially, he's saying you do all the right things. You even say all the right things. Maybe we'd hear it today in our our culture as you go to church every Sunday. You read your Bible every morning. You pray every night before you go to bed. You serve as often as you can and you give generously. Right? All the things on the outside. You're doing everything right externally. But on the inside, your heart is far from the heart of God. We'll come back to this idea here in a little bit, but we begin to see the real problem that Jesus is addressing here to the Pharisees. That is the problem of the heart. Jesus also identifies here that they have what I'm calling misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Let's look back one more time at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. Jesus here is is, uh, referring to Isaiah 29, and he says, Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, what's happening here is the Pharisees have begun to prioritize their traditions over their prioritization of the commandments of God. And Jesus here kind of gives them an example, somewhat somewhat of a case study of really what this looks like. We read about it just a few minutes ago, but he he mentions that they're intentionally 
uh, rejecting the command to honor their father and mother, which is one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. They're rejecting that due to this thing called Corbin. Now, Corbin, kind of an interesting thing. It almost operated kind of like a weird deferred giving plan where they would be able to intentionally set aside money for God, which meant then if and when their parents maybe had some need or there was some some reason that they needed some financial assistance, because they had already, quote-unquote, given all their money to God, they they wouldn't have to do that. They wouldn't have to take care of their parents because they had already given all their money to God. All the while, they were able to pull from that money for themselves and whatever need or desire that they had freely. See, basically, this was just a spiritual loophole that they were using. Just another man-made tradition that they used to cover up their own sin and their own greed. I think it's really important at the end of of this example that Jesus gives them, what he says at the very end of of verse 13. Maybe you noticed when I read it a moment ago, but he ends this example by saying, and and, uh, many such things you do. And many such things you do. See, Jesus here simply is just giving the Pharisees and the the scribes just one example, just one of the probably many places in which they've misplaced their priorities. My guess is when they heard that, it probably made them cringe a little bit, probably made them hope that Jesus wasn't going to continue sharing other examples of the places in which their priorities are a little bit out of whack. And I think that even though for us, probably this idea of Corbin and some of these traditions that we've read about so far in this story, they maybe feel a little bit far removed from us in our current culture. I wonder if even maybe this morning, Jesus, through his word and through his spirit, is maybe even beginning to identify some of the misplaced priorities in our hearts as well. Some of the, the traditions or some of the things that we might even uh, have swayed to, be, to think are, are necessary or even essential or required to quote-unquote holiness. Some of the things that we might prioritize even ahead of just truly following Jesus and following his commands. See, I think if we really paused to listen to what it is that Jesus might be saying to us, that he might be able to point out some examples that might make us cringe a little bit here this morning as well. And so all of this, these first 13 verses, really are what Mark uses to set the scene in a way for what he's really wanting, for what Jesus is really wanting to address here in the rest of our passage. Because really the central point that we'll get to in the next chunk of our passage is really all about the condition, the, the spiritual cleanness of our hearts. That leads us to our third point this morning. That is the problem The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Let's read the remainder of our passage from Mark chapter 7, looking at verses 14 to 23. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I'll pause here just for a brief moment. You might recognize there is no verse 16 that's listed if you're looking in your Bible. Some of the original manuscripts show the same phrase that Mark uses in chapter 4, 23, saying, if anyone has ears, let him hear. But uh, it's not in here, so we'll skip down to verse 17. 
It says, when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier that we have a, uh, a one-year-old daughter. Obviously, it's been so much fun over the last almost 13 months now to watch her grow and learn. She loves saying dada, but I'm pretty sure she loves mama just a little bit more. So we're trying to work hard to kind of Reverse that, but we'll see, see what happens. Uh, but anyways, I think that probably her favorite thing to do in life is to eat. Which, to be fair, I can really relate to and, and have a lot of respect for. But she absolutely loves when she gets to go into her high chair. She wants to do everything all by herself, right? She doesn't like spoons, doesn't like being fed. She likes to use her hands. And so obviously every time that that happens, she makes an absolute mess. Uh, just earlier this week, she discovered yogurt. Here's a picture really of just the beginning stages of what that looked like. Uh, it, it, got, it got quite out of hand. But really, there's no question that she can make things pretty unclean. Really, that's what Jesus regathers the crowd here to talk about. The issue of the cleanness of our hearts. Now again, I think it's important here that we remember that the Pharisees and the scribes, they realized that they were unclean before the presence of God. They knew that they had a problem and Jesus agreed with them on that. But the difference was Jesus strongly disagreed with them about the source of their uncleanliness. And so Jesus here begins to address what he believes to be the heart of the problem. Let's look back again at verse 15. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I don't know if you caught it, but there's something that's really interesting that's going on here. Because earlier, the Pharisees, they really only asked Jesus about unclean hands and some of the different washing rituals and traditions. But not only does Jesus begin to confront those traditions, He begins to even take it a step further and call into question their entire approach to the law of God. See, Jesus is telling them something really important here. That there's a deeper problem going on. That they're so concerned with all of the external things, but that's not really the problem. The problem is within. The heart of the problem is the problem Of the heart. Now, this naturally confused the crowd a little bit. And so when everybody else left, the disciples kind of circled back with Jesus and they asked him if he would clarify what it really was that he was talking about. And here's what he says in the middle of verse 18. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Now, if you're anything like me, this this little biology lesson that Jesus gives here, it's a little bit strange. It kind of confused me the first time that I read it. And it honestly didn't really mean that much to me. 
But in this culture, these words that Jesus says are spiritually revolutionary because he is completely flipping upside down their entire understanding of sin and their entire understanding of impurity. See, he's saying that the real issues are on the inside. The real problem is with the heart. You don't become unclean by what comes in, by what you eat, but by what goes out. Jesus even says food is eaten and is digested and then expelled, which is a quick side note. I love that Jesus gives that visual for us in the Bible. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that sin begins in the heart, sin remains in the heart, and sinful behaviors come out of the heart. Sin begins in the heart, it remains in the heart, and sinful behaviors, the whole list of things that he just listed out in verses 21 to 23, that stuff comes out of our hearts. See, the problem isn't what we do, or how we behave, or what traditions we might or might not follow. Jesus is saying that the problem of sin is within us. That's the problem. Sin is what makes a person unclean. Now, I'll be honest, it's a very unpopular take in our current culture, isn't it? We don't like this whole idea of sin. We don't like the idea that there might be some problem with us. We certainly don't like the idea that we might even be guilty of something. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment. We don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel like there's something wrong with us. Keller goes on in his book called Jesus the King, and he mentions how even though in our modern culture we've kind of abandoned this whole idea that there might be a problem with us, that we still have this deep sense that we're just not acceptable enough, that we're just not quite good enough, right? And so we work and we work and we work to try to prove to ourselves and to try to prove to everybody else around us that we are worthy, that we're lovable, that we're valuable, See, even though we don't really like to admit it, I think we all know deep down that we have a problem, but oftentimes we tend to address it in the wrong way. Before we get to that, I think it's important that we recognize one more thing that happens here in this story. It happens in verse 19. Park, uh, Mark sorry, uh, pauses just for a quick moment here to make a, make a little editorial comment. And if you've been tracking with us throughout the Gospel of Mark, pretty much every week we've been talking about how fast-paced this Gospel is. Jesus, Mark uses the word immediately like a million times. He's always, always on the move and kind of on to the next thing. But he pauses here for a moment, something he hardly ever does. And he says, thus he declared all foods clean. Probably Sounds a little confusing to us again in our culture, but Mark is essentially saying that it's, it's as if in that moment right there in the story that Jesus is saying, I am now making all foods clean. And I think only when we really understand and remember just how serious Jesus is about the Old Testament law and just about the word of God in general, it's only then do we realize how big of a deal this really is. Because Jesus here, he's not making some kind of a statement that he's just doing away with moral law. He's not making a statement that he's kind of reducing the bar of holiness and making it a little bit easier. He's not doing anything like that. Rather, Jesus, the one who has all power and all authority, we've seen it on display specifically the last couple of weeks, but really throughout the, the whole gospel of Mark, 
Jesus here is declaring something entirely different. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, he's saying here that the reason that you don't need to follow all of these these traditions and these man-made rituals is because I've already fulfilled them. I've already fulfilled their purpose. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and to restore our hearts back to the Father. So how does that happen, right? What does that look like? I think we tend to think of it happening in in either one one of two ways. Either we think that this happens outside in, or it happens inside out. Right? We either think that it happens outside in, that we're trying to address our sense of unclean, uh, uncleanliness, our, our sense that there is a problem with us just by following this whole list of things to do and this whole list of things not to do. Right? If I just stay away from those friends, if I just unfollow those people on social media, if I just look away at that part of the movie, if I just stop doing all of these sinful behaviors, and if I just go to church a little bit more often, If I just read my Bible maybe one more day a week, if I just pray a little bit more regularly. Essentially, if I just do all these things, if I just work really, really hard, then God is going to see all of my efforts. He'll see how good of a person I really am, at least better than that guy. And he'll begin to restore my heart and to make me righteous. So I'm sure we've all lived that way. I know that I have, at least for a season of our lives, right? We probably have all had some sense or some idea that that's how God works. That, yeah, I know God loves me, but there's also this list of things that I have to do to earn that or to at least keep that. But that's not how Jesus operates. It's not how Jesus operates. It's not what he came to do. See, the way that Jesus makes us clean happens inside out. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we're made right with God only through what Jesus did for us on the cross. That even though he never sinned, he clothed himself in our sin. He paid the price for us so that we could be made clean. That's the gospel. That, that's the gospel. That, the gospel doesn't happen outside in. It's not based on all of our efforts. The gospel happens inside out. Gospel isn't something that we need to earn in and of ourselves. It's not a list of things to do and a list of things not to do. The gospel is a gift. Grace is a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. So I want to close this morning just by asking you a simple question. Honestly, it's been a question that I've really been wrestling with myself over the last couple of days and, and throughout the week. The question is pretty simple. There was already a slide for it a minute ago. Here's the question. Do you view the gospel as outside in or is inside out? How do you view the gospel? Outside in or inside out? I think way more often than I would like to admit to myself, I kind of view the gospel outside in. I kind of view it as though there's some problem out there 
that I need to work really, really hard to address, that I need to work really, really hard to earn and to solve all on my own. But again, that's not how Jesus operates. That's not what the gospel is all about. See, the gospel is about this idea that the heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts and that there's only one answer to that problem. There's only one solution. There's only one thing that can make us right with God. There's only one way to be clean, to experience spiritual freedom, and to experience holiness. The only answer is found in what Jesus has done for us, for me and for you on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. Lord, that even when we encounter passages like this that upon first reading might seem like they don't really relate to us or that they're a little bit outdated even. God, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we are just so grateful for the opportunity we have this morning to gather and to worship you. Lord, I just pray that for those of us who, who view you in a way in which we have to do all this work in order to earn your love and to earn the gift of grace, God, I just pray that through your spirit you would begin just to change our hearts and our mind. God, that you would change us from the inside out. God, that you would allow us to acknowledge the deep love that you have for us. Even when we were sinners, you died for us. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.